0: Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Howard M. Wasserman, Professor of Law at Florida International University College of Law. We will discuss his new book, Infield Fly Rule is in Effect, the History and Strategy of Baseball's Most Infamous Rule, which is published by McFarland and Company. So welcome to the podcast, Howard. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So this is... as I was saying earlier, I'm a huge infield fly rule fan, even though I am i couldn't really describe myself as a baseball fan per se. And I really enjoyed reading your book because you got into the rule in such amazingly granular and fascinating detail. But for listeners who may not uh, be baseball fans or may not be familiar with the infield fly rule, I was wondering if you could just like explain to people what it is, because it seems like even for a lot of baseball fans, it's a rule kind of, that's an enigma shrouded in a mystery, you know, within, (laughs) you know, something that's very hard to understand.
1: Yeah, no. And I think that's why there, there are like, there are multiple groups out there. There are People who are baseball fans. There are people who are infield fly rule fans. There are baseball fans who are very big fans of the of the infield fly rule. Is just this uh, what I refer to as the entree into baseball. If you know the infield fly rule, then you're a then you're a real baseball fan. And I think there are a lot of lawyers and a lot of law professors who who are are sort of in that in that camp. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the basic idea of, of the, the basic thing that the infield fly rule says is is this that if a, the batting team is up and has either runners on first and second or the base is loaded with less than two out and the batter hits a fair fly ball that is playable by an infielder with ordinary effort, that would be an easy catch for an infielder to make. Then the batter is automatically out. The runners are not forced to advance, although they can run at their own risk. And if they do, uh, they have to be tagged out. It's not a force play for them running to the next base. Um, and the idea behind the rule is, is to eliminate what is regarded as kind of a cheap or unfair double play that the infielder would intentionally not catch the ball. Uh, If if you didn't have the rule, the infielder could intentionally not catch the ball and get a double or triple play on the base runners um, uh, rather than one out by catching the ball. So in other words, the defense is better off not catching the ball than catching the ball. And this takes away the incentive to do that.
0: Okay. So how does it work in practice? Like if the, if the, the players who are running see this pop fly ball, do they just know that that's infield fly rule and know that the batter's out or does something else have to happen? Well, so the umpire has to,
1: has to declare the, has to declare infield fly has to actually call the batter out. So the umpire has to make a judgment call that the ball is playable by an infielder with ordinary effort. And usually what they look to is, was the ball hit high enough in the air and is the infielder settled under the ball and just kind of, you know, is he stationary and and waiting for the ball to come down to him? Uh, And when the umpire sees that, you'll see him uh, it's, it's on the cover of the book. He'll raise his fist in the air. Um, that signals that the batter is out. And that tells the base runners that infield fly was called, and that tells them uh, what they can or cannot do. Of course, they don't always pay attention, which is where you
0: sort of occasionally get comedies of errors. <laughs> okay, so when when does this happen? When does the umpire actually make the call?
1: Uh, there's some debate about that, but it 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 is some point when the ball is in the air and, uh, uh, before it lands on the ground. So there's debate among umpires. Some say you call it when the ball is at its apex of its, of its flight. Others say you just watch the infielder. And once you see him settled under the ball, uh, that's when, that's when it, it should be declared, Um, and the, to the latter school relies on the idea that you don't actually watch the ball. You watch the infielder when you see the infielder's body language that indicates it's an easy playable ball. That's when the umpire, that's when the umpire declares and calls and calls the batter out.
0: Okay. So one thing I think might be helpful, uh, in understanding how this kind of functions in practice is to sort of work out. In the absence of the infield fly roll, what would happen? So the concern is a double or
1: triple play. So, so here's the situation. If you imagine uh, a ball hit, you know, near where the shortstop stands kind of on the edge of the outfield grass and the shortstop is settled under the ball um, and just waiting for it to come down. Now the, and let's say there are runners on first and second, those base runners Uh, kind of know the situation, and they know that if the fielder, if the infielder catches the ball, then they can't advance unless they retouch, unless they tag up. They, they touch the, the base that they're on and then try to, try to run to the next base. Um, and, uh, so, and they also know that if they drift too far away from the base, and if they don't tag up, they can be thrown out at their prior base. They also know that if they drift too far towards the next base to wait and see what's going to happen, then if they drift too far off and the fielder catches the ball, they're going to be doubled off on their prior base. So those base runners both have to stay pretty close or stand right on their current bases. All right, they have to stay really close. Okay, and now if the infielder, if we didn't have an infield fly rule, and if the infielder didn't catch the ball... Uh, now the runners are stuck because now they have to run like 85 feet to get to the next base ahead of the throws and they're, and especially on a ball that's reasonably close to the infield, which a ball that is playable by an infielder would be, um, they're not going to be able to beat those two throws. Uh, because they can't lead too far without getting doubled off, they have to stay close to their current base. But then when the ball falls to the ground, they're not going to be able to make it to the next bases. And so the defense, so the shortstop could drop that ball, pick it up, throw to third, third baseman throws to second. Now they get a double play on the two base runners on a play that ordinarily you would expect them to get just one out by catching catching the fly ball. So – the base runners are really hung out to dry. There is, is nothing that they can do or they are stuck and really unable to, to counter the play because they, can't, they have to stay close to home. They can't lead too far, but then they have too far to go to try and beat the double play. And so the idea of the infield rule was, well, if we call the batter out, then the force out on the base runners is off. They are no longer obligated to run. So they don't have to go anywhere. So they don't have to worry about seeing whether the uh, fielder catches the ball or not. They can't, if he drops it, they can run, but they don't have to. So that the catch 22 that they're placed in is, is taken out. Uh, There's a 1911 newspaper article that described the base runners being up a tree, which is, you know, kind of interesting early 20th century language to describe it. But we're trying to get the infielders out of that impossible bind.
0: Yeah. So if I understand it correctly, then without the infield fly rule, the base runners would have no idea what to do until the, the fielder decided whether to catch or not catch the ball. That's exactly right. And then whatever he decides
1: they're toast they're going to get thrown out no matter what they, no matter what they do. Yeah. And the, and, and a good infielder, if you take away the rule and infielders practice this and they get good at this, a good infielder can, can hide his intention. He can wait until the very last instant to, uh, to decide whether he's going to catch the ball or not. Um, and his teammates can kind of work with him to see okay what are the base runners doing are they going well now I'll catch the ball are they staying are they staying put well now I won't catch it uh, and, and so the 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 infielder has what I call last mover advantage uh, because mm. he can see what the infield is doing but what the base runners are allowed to do rests entirely with the infielder the the base runner's obligation entirely depends on whether the fielder catches the ball or not.
0: And what yeah. the I mean, infield
1: fly rule does is it, it, it no longer matters whether the infielder catches the ball or not because the batter's
0: out. Right. I mean, it's almost like a Schrodinger's rule or something in a sense, like the batter's both out and not out until the, the fielder decides what to do.
1: Exactly, exactly. And, or, or we just don't know. So the rule just takes away the possibility of the batter. Once the rule is invoked, it takes away the possibility of the batter not being out. And that eliminates, I describe it in terms of incentives, there's no longer a reason for the infielder not to catch the ball. And so no longer a reason for the base runners to have to make any choices.
0: Okay, so you kind of alluded to this earlier, but is this like a new rule or is it something that's been around for a long time and where where did it come from? It has been around for a long time. Um the the the
1: history there there's there's a lot of interesting and kind of new historical uh research being being done on it and finding some different things every day, but the prevailing story is that the strata the the rule didn't exist for about the first if you date the origins of professional baseball to the 1860s or 1870s the rule didn't exist for about the first 30 or so years and uh there were a, a number of infielders who were quite well known for making this play uh and for and for executing this play And in the mid 1890s, uh, the, or in 1890, actually there was a, uh, what was called the players league, which was a rival league to the net rival, major league to the national league that only played for one season. It had an infield fly rule. And then the national league put the rule in place starting in 1894. Uh, and there were a couple of high profile examples that had gotten, uh, some attention. Uh, there was concern that with the more prevalent use of gloves, the play was becoming a lot easier and there for infielders to make, and therefore it was unfair. The catch non catch thing was potentially kind of tricky for an infielder who's playing without a glove. Uh, it becomes a lot harder once they started playing with gloves and once the gloves uh, became of of higher quality. So at some point in the early 1890s, people started thinking that the play was a little too easy for infielders to now make and therefore unfair to – even more unfair to the base runners. So the first version of the rule was introduced in the National League in 1894 – um, and initially it applied only to a runner on first with one out. And then there were a series of amendments over the course of the next decade or so. And by 1904, the basic framework of what we now have was in place. Uh, there was one tweak added in 1920, but by 1904, what we would now recognize as the rule was was in place. So it took about a decade of of tweaking uh, by the rules drafters to 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 get where we where we ended up.
0: Right. I mean, it sounds like there, at least initially, was a relatively significant degree of skill required of the fielder in order to sort of make this play work, but as players frankly have gotten so good maybe it's easier and easier for them to actually do it players have gotten better
1: equipment has gotten better uh and fields have gotten better so if you think about what you have to do to execute the 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 key to executing the play is either to let the ball drop to the ground untouched or to draw or to let it go into your glove or into your hands and then fall to the ground in a way that number one doesn't look too obvious like it's intentional because you can't intentionally drop a ball there's a separate rule about that and number two that it lands on the ground in a way that is easy for you to control so that you can pick it up and you can make the one or two throws that are necessary to get the double play and as gloves got better it was easier to do that as the fields got better um it became you know there was less of a risk that the ball was going to hit some random pebble and kick off god knows where so it was just it was easier to get to control the ball it was easier to get a nice clean bounce off the ground or a clean landing for the ball on the ground and so both of those things combined and as you said, the skill of the fielders and all three of those things combined um, to make it an easier play to make. And that, I think, prompted the changes
0: to the rules. Uh, And it was, you know, go go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, it's, I mean, it seems like the infield fly rule at this point is almost like sort of baseball's version of a rule from time immemorial, as lawyers might, might put it. Um, but in your book, you note that there is a debate over the rule. What is that? And what are, what are people debating?
1: There are a few people who argue, and I, I discussed a, a couple of the arguments that, that were or made. There are a few people who argue essentially that the the play isn't unfair and the play would actually create some excitement. So let's have that excitement into the game uh, because there's skill involved in what we just described, not catching a ball in a way that allows you to, uh, to control it and to make a play on it. That actually is an infielder skill, so let's promote it. We can get this nice cat and mouse game between the base runners and the fielders. Maybe the base runners will run and they'll try to prompt the, or force the the infielder into an error. Uh, or, you know, the infielders can be clever in how they disguise their intent. And, and so there's a game between the runners and the infielders uh, and that ought to be promoted. The argument goes rather than, allowing everything to uh, rest in the hands of, of an umpire. Uh, there's an argument that the pitcher did a good job. The pitcher did his job really well because he prompted the batter to hit a really weak fly ball to the infield, so he should be rewarded buy multiple outs if his, if his, uh, if his defenders can, can pull it off. Uh, so those are the, those are the two big ones that, that we don't, that we don't need it. Uh, and, and that what it brings to the game is actually something that we, that we want to promote. And at least some people, some umpires or people of, uh, associated or affiliated with umpiring that I spoke to, took the position that, you know, normatively I'm not going to opine on the rule one way or another, but it's been around for uh, 120 years at this point, so we ought to keep it for tradition's sake.
0: Yeah, well, so, I mean, you kind of, in, in your book, you kind of try to counter this revisionist perspective, as it were, on on the infield fly rule. What's, what's your take? Why, why do you disagree? with those critics of the rule, Because I think the, I don't think it would create
1: a cat and mouse game. What I think it would create is an overwhelming advantage to the defense uh, because infielders would be so good at at it that you'd see a, a significant increase in these, in these double plays. And I don't think it's, it's warranted. I think the rules of a game ought to exist to balance out the equities of a situation of a a particular game situation uh, to the extent possible. So there's going to be costs and benefits and some team is going to come out ahead uh, on any play relative to, to, you know, one team is going to come out ahead on the other, but when it's so overwhelmingly stacked, I think it's appropriate for the rules to step in. And so one of the things that, that prompted me to start writing about this is I was seeing a lot of commentary, including on some blog posts that I had written. And they and, and the basic argument was, well, why do we have a special rule for the infield fly situation, but we don't have it for these other situations in baseball? And we don't have it for these other situations in other sports. And aren't they all the same? So where I was coming from was trying to figure out what is it that made the infield fly situation or the situation that prompts the infield fly role different from all these other situations in baseball. And what I found was, or what I developed was a framework that shows why this really is this unique, is a unique situation that does warrant its own unique rule, even if, uh, in order to eliminate that just sort of overwhelming uh, cost-benefit disadvantage, even if we allow cost-benefit advantages in other contexts.
0: Right. So in your book, you observe that this debate about the wisdom of retaining the infield fly rule is playing out in, among other places, law reviews, uh, surprisingly. Why is that? (laughs) Why are legal scholars uh, and lawyers interested in in the infield fly rule? And what is the sort of legal history, as it were, of the infield fly rule?
1: So the why goes back to something I, I, I said it at the outset. There are a lot of baseball fans who are also infield fly rule fans, and they seem to gravitate into law and into the legal and into the legal academy. Uh, so the the legal history starts in 1975 with an unsigned student piece in uh, Penn Law Review, it was uh, of, uh, later attributed to a. To a, a guy named William Stevens, and the piece was called "The Common Law Origins of the Infield Fly Rule." It was it was an eight page student note, student comment um, that talked about the history of the infield fly rule and its and and its development and evolution as an example of common law decision making and common law development. And I think this so that was published in 1975. And I think there's about, you know, it's 45 years or so. And there's three or four generations of law professors who are just kicking themselves that they didn't think of it first. <laughs> and, yeah. And so what followed was over the years, a lot of articles that, uh, you know, law professors would write something about, using the infield fly rule as some sort of analogy or some sort of metaphor for something else, property law, tax law, uh, whatever, always kind of pointing back to, uh, uh, the Stevens article as, as, as the, as the big bang, uh, for, uh, for it all. Uh, and there's also a strand of legal scholarship that looks to sports to illustrate legal and, and interpretive and jurisprudential uh, ideas. So, you know, you'll see if when, when something big happens in sports, that's rule related, you will see law review articles pop up here and there uh, using that play, or that situation and that rule to illustrate something about uh, about jurisprudence and, and and legal interpretation, and and that actually is what prompted my interest in in writing about this. So my starting point for this whole project was uh, in 2012. There was a very controversial infield fly call in a playoff game between the Atlanta Braves and the St. Louis Cardinals, where infield fly was invoked on a ball hit pretty far out into left field. Uh, and the, call, the, the base runners advanced on the, on the ball was, was not caught because of some miscommunication between the, the fielders. Um, but the umpire invoked the rule. The base runners advanced, but the batter was called out the fans went nuts. They started throwing stuff on the field and the game was delayed for 20 minutes. And I wrote a couple of blog posts about the play where, and, and I basically tried to, to do the, the jurisprudential thing. And I, and I said that the play was actually a nice illustration of how you get different results. If you focus from a textualist perspective, as opposed to a, Purposivist perspective. That if you, if you apply textualism, the call was probably right because the text of the rule just says, is it playable by an infielder with ordinary effort in the appropriate situation? And the answer was probably yes. But if you apply purposivism, if the purpose is to avoid that double play, well, this was a ball that was hit so far out into the outfield that the that the base runners, that there was no chance that the base runners would have been doubled off if the infielder had intentionally not caught the ball. So the purpose of the rule wasn't really triggered on that play. So if you take a purpose of this approach, maybe the call was wrong. And I, I thought it was, you know, just a good illustration of how you get potentially different results from applying those different uh, interpretive modes. Or those different uh, approaches to statutory interpretation, uh, and I started writing more broadly when I saw the response of people saying not only was this call wrong, but hey, we ought to just get rid of the infield fly rule entirely, uh, and that kind of set me down on what's now been a been a six year uh, has been a six year writing project.
0: Well, so you've given one example of how the infield fly rule works as an illustration of a sort of jurisprudential concept. But why is it, do you think, that legal scholars have been so drawn to – the infield fly rule as a metaphor for legal reasoning and jurisprudence. Is there something special or unique or distinctive about it that makes it an especially appropriate metaphor for what we do as lawyers and legal scholars?
1: I don't think so. I mean, honestly, I don't think so. Uh, I think it stands out because it is, it has its own name and it has this pride of place in baseball. I think even if you don't, if you, like you, even if you aren't a baseball fan, you've at least heard of the infield fly rule. Uh, and, and it's just, it's sort of known in that way. So I think when people were gravitating to write about something, it made sense that that would be the, the thing that they, that they would seize on. I don't think it is necessarily the most, Jurisprudentially interesting or it is the only jurisprudentially interesting play that you could see either in baseball or in sports more generally I think because it's so well known it just kind of presented itself as the first thing to uh, as the first thing to look at
0: yeah so well one thing that struck me when I was reading your book was you talked about the infield fly rule in relation to the aesthetics of baseball. And I was wondering if you could if you could talk a little bit about what what you meant by that about the aesthetics of of baseball and maybe also about sort of like how that might relate if at all to the aesthetics of jurisprudence.
1: So the aesthetic problem is the the, the key to this play and the thing we don't like about this play is that it all hinges on the infielder intentionally not doing what we ordinarily expect him to do, which is to catch an easily playable fair fly ball. Ordinarily, if there's an easy fly ball, we expect the, the infielder wants to catch it and we expect the infielder to catch it. And the game is, is built around, around that. And so one of the, the problems, the thing about the infield fly play is the double play comes about because the infielder intentionally didn't do that. On this one play, he intentionally did the opposite of what he wants to do. He didn't perform the skills that we expect him to, to perform. He did the opposite. He dropped it. And he dropped it intentionally. And from a, you know, the, the argument in favor or the argument against the rule is, Hey, you know what? That requires some skill. You've got to be good in order to not catch the ball in a way that allows you to make a play. And the response to that is, yeah, but it really looks kind of ugly from Mm -hmm. it, it. It looks aesthetically displeasing. To have infielders, to have fielders intentionally not catching the ball, and that's kind of the other, I think, element to this is the is that the rulemakers could reasonably say we don't want to incentivize infielders to not catch the ball because we don't like what the game would look like uh, uh, in that situation, and so the and so will have this rule in order to eliminate this play or the incentive for this play that makes the game less aesthetically pleasing. And you can imagine a lot of rules being about that. It's, it's, it's all, all laws, all rules governing some context or some community uh, are about making for the best community including the, the most aesthetically pleasing, the most watchable, the most livable community that we, can, that we can create. And that, in a sense, that's what a lot of legal rules do. And that's at least a piece of what the infill fly rule is, is designed to do.
0: So in closing, Howard, I wonder if you could speculate. Do you think the infield fly rule is going anywhere or is it here to stay?
1: It is here to stay. It is. It is not going anywhere. Um, the, the voices that are pushing for its repeal are sort of very much in the wilderness. Uh, one of the, the 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 one of the people that I was that I was responding to in the book is a, is a, a, a judge on the Central District of California who wrote an article urging. Repeal of the rule, and he's obviously in a high profile position, but not high profile with with respect to baseball. Uh, <laughs> I was not able to talk to anybody within baseball, within Major League Baseball, about the the, the rule as part of this book, unfortunately. Um, but I have seen no inclination uh, by anybody in a position of authority to even and to even toy with it. Uh, and they're rethinking a lot about baseball. Certainly Uh, this has never come up in anybody's, in anybody's serious conversations. And one thing is, is because I think there's a general distaste for that unfair double play. And one of the people that I was able to talk to uh, for the book is a former umpire named Jim Evans. Uh, who uh, umpired for years in the major leagues for years. He was, he ran the umpire school that trained all of the minor league and major league baseball umpires. And he's regarded widely regarded as the Dean of, of umpires, the one most knowledgeable about the rules. And I asked him if they were to repeal the rule, how long before infielder started trying to do this and his answer was last week uh and that (laughs) and as they practiced it they would only get that much better at and and as they practiced it and as they strategized for it and his team strategized for it they would only get that much better at the play so it's it's not it's not going anywhere It it is here to stay
0: Okay. Well, Howard, it's been great talking to you, and I got to say, I really enjoyed reading your book. It's wonderfully written and like a total baseball page turner.
1: Well, thank you very much, and thank you for uh, thank you for having me on.
2: Stan Musial, one of the greatest left-handed hitters in the game of baseball. Stan, what advice do you have to youngsters who want to become great hitters? Well, the first thing, Lou, I think they should uh, have a bat that they can handle and uh, experiment with a bat um, with the uh, type of handle they might want to use. And because you swing it at all times, and a bat is one of the most important things in hitting, so uh, they should uh, have, uh, be careful in the choice of their bat. What about covering home plate, the outside of home plate and the inside stand, and so far as standing the distance from home plate? Well, that's right, they should experiment standing toward the plate and uh, away from the plate until they can cover the bat with their swing, and one uh, that feels comfortable to them and uh, knowing that uh, when they swing at the ball that will cover home plate and uh, I think by practicing why well, they can do that, Lou. What about actually the grip of the bat, Stan? Do you hold that bat tight at all times? Well, you hold it uh, firm, Lou. Uh, you don't want to choke a bat because it tightens up your muscles, but uh, you want to have a good uh, firm grip on the bat because uh, the ball don't knock the bat out of your hand and uh, it's, a, it's a good firm grip and the grip is uh, Uh, Very, very important how you uh, hold your hands on this bat and uh, be sure you get the proper instructions how to, to, uh, you don't twist your uh, wrists around so far that you're tied up with your wrists because uh, you can't swing the bat with your wrists tied up. So the grip is very, very important. Would you say that your knuckles should be lined up I think if the knuckles are pretty close to lined up, uh, their uh, their wrists will be free and loose, and uh, they'll be able to swing that uh, bat very uh, easily, Lou. Stan, how do you uh, hold your head when you're looking at the pitcher? And your shoulders are they kept straight and level? Well, they're good and level, Lou. And the main thing about your eyes is uh, you turn your head toward the pitcher, so both of your eyes are looking directly at the pitcher rather than having your eyes at an angle, whereas uh, one eye is not getting a good look at it. So be sure your head is turned around directly at the pitcher and uh, you're looking at the pitcher with two eyes and you get a you get a better much better look at the ball do you move uh, in that batter's box forward or back according to the pitcher I generally don't like to change around in the box too much Lou because uh, uh, with my one stance I know the strike zone and uh, therefore I don't like to move around uh, too much uh, in the batter's box I have the one stance and I keep with it. What about your stride, Stan, into the ball in order to bring your hips around? I think the most uh, fault uh, about hitting is overstriding, and uh, that's one of my problems. So a good shorter stride and not too much of a stride is much better than uh, uh, trying to uh, take a big stride and I found out that the arms uh, do the work and uh, this way with a shorter stride the bat can come around quicker and uh, you could uh, uh, hit the ball better. And what about your follow through after the contact of the bat on the ball? Well naturally uh, after you hit the ball why uh, you uh, try to uh, break your wrist just about the contact with the ball and follow through uh, you never stop your swing uh, because uh, that way you lose your power. So, uh, as you meet the ball, you uh, follow through with your swing and it gives you that little extra extra power. Well, thank you very much, uh, Stan Musial, and let's hope that we have a lot of youngsters that will become Stan Musials in baseball. Well, fine, Lou. Thank you very much. Baseball tips from the stars by Mars Candy. Mars Candy has two other special records for you. One is How to Pitch with Warren Spahn, Joey Jay, Johnny Padres, and Don Drysdale. The other is How to Field with Willie Mays, Don Hoke, John Roseboro, and Gil Hodges. Have you heard them? They're sure to help you. So long for now. Good luck and good batting.